0: Good morning, saints. Was that time of worship rich to you? Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, he is here in the midst of us. And that was a rich time of worship. This morning I want to talk with Jesus, drug dealers, and porn stars. And off the bat, I would tell you that when you're doing slides like this, you want to be careful when you're Googling porn stars. <laughs> Just a life tip. I got to her through a, a Google on Trump and current troubles, which is a little bit safer. That is stormy. I would recommend to you a book written by a guy named Judah Smith, named Jesus Is, that I would help unpack some of this for you this morning because here's what I want to do. I want to take a fresh look at Jesus, which I understand to be a bit of a risk, given that I'm looking at any number of students who are well-educated, students in Bible and theology, seminary students, faculty, and so what happens is we get used to things. In this case, we get comfortable with the idea that we know who Jesus is, because we've heard him talked about for quite a while. But my sense is that we have lost some of the power of who Jesus is because the stories in the Bible have lost their ability to shock us. They were very shocking in the first century, but not so much in the 21st century. So what I want to do this morning is walk you through a number of stories of Jesus and reinterpret them for you as the early church would have heard them or the Jewish community. Because I believe Jesus and his message are far more radical and unbelievable than we've recognized very often. I think our Jesus is too safe. I think he's way too safe. I think we cleaned him up. I think for a lot of us, he wears a white dress and floats six inches above the ground. And there's no way you could come to that conclusion as a first century person reading the Gospels. So here's, that's where we wanna go. So I'm gonna ask you, how well do you know Jesus? I wanna paint five pictures for you. How well do you know Jesus? The one we proclaim to love and serve and follow. And worse than that, to be like, to model our lives after. So the first one is the Jesus who seeks the despised. And these are, these are common stories to you, I imagine. Luke 5 tells us, Jesus goes out and sees a tax collector by the name of Levi, who's called Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. And Jesus says, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. And that's pretty well all we think about it. See how clean that story is? And Levi holds a great banquet for Jesus and a large crowd of tax collectors and others reading eating with them. And of course, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who today would represent the church, say to Jesus, What do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And notice that phrase, because very often in the Gospels, they come together, tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus gives the famous line that we like to quote, it isn't healthy who need a doctor but the sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What do you know about Matthew? Because this is kind of how we picture him clean little fellow, sat at his desk, uh, works for the CRA. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of picture Matthew like an accountant, the three-piece suit type. How about this one? Jesus is going through Jericho, he sees a man there by the name of Zacchaeus, he's a chief tax collector, he was wealthy, of course, he couldn't see who, you know, he couldn't see Jesus because he was a short fellow, so he gets up in a sycamore tree, a lot of you have sung about this in Sunday school, right? Jesus gets there, looks at him, and says, come down, because I'm what? I'm going to your house for tea, huh? Because apparently they drank a lot of that in Palestine in the first century. And how you know that people in the church have not changed, the people saw this and began to mutter. We have mutterers today in the church as well. You may not know this if you're a congregant, but if you're a pastor among us, you know that full well. Mutterers are still among us. What do they mutter? He's got to be the guest of a what? Sinner. I'd ask you this, what do you know about Zacchaeus? He's short. That's pretty well our sum total of knowledge about Zacchaeus now. He was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. I don't think somehow, friends, the point of this passage was to tell us that Zacchaeus was a short man. You see how we're missing it in the 21st century? The point is not that he was short. The point is that he's a chief tax collector. Which doesn't mean he heads a branch of the CRA. Nope, they were employed by the occupying force, which is Rome, to collect taxes from the Jews. So picture with me for a moment that the US invades Canada, which given the current climate south of the border is not entirely unrealistic. So the US is up here. We've been taken over. President Trump is now ours. So they were Jews working for Rome, and so in that sense they were the worst kind of traitors, so you've got a picture now that you are being made to pay American taxes, and the people collecting them from you are from Toronto. They are working for the Americans. Worse than that, they took far more than Rome's requirement. So you're not just paying your taxes to a fellow citizen of Toronto who is now working for the U.S. government. You're paying way more than you're supposed to be paying. And these people are able, for example, to stop you when you've been shopping and to see your three pairs of jeans and two lovely tops that you just bought and to say, I think I'll have a pair of jeans and I'll have both your tops. When you get paid and you get your $400 in your pocket, they're able to come along and say, I think I'll have 150 of that. And you protest and say, no, no, my taxes are only 50. And they say, that's tough. I want 150. That's how tax collectors rolled. The very worst kinds of traders. Your chief tax collector had a group of these traders working for him and took a cut of all of their profits. You getting a sense of who Matthew was? You getting a sense of who Zacchaeus is? Rabbis taught that one tax collector in a family defiled the whole family. Tax collectors could not testify in Jewish court because they were of such low character they weren't considered a reputable witness. you were allowed to break a promise to a tax collector. You weren't allowed to lie or break promises normally but to a tax collector you would because it was considered fair game because they were so low. And this one really amazes me because I'm Pentecostal. But the, tithe, the synagogue would not even accept their tithe. And I can't imagine anyone from who tithes we would not take. <laughs> when somebody comes up to us with their money, we sanctify that money right there. And we bless it in Jesus' name. And we put that thing in the collection plate. Right there, just like that. But the synagogue would not even take their tithe. Jesus eats with them. And in that culture, to eat with somebody is to identify with them. And so the question is, why does Jesus risk scandal as a good man, as a Jewish rabbi, to associate himself with people like Matthew and Zacchaeus? And the question is because he cares way more about the scandalous than the scandal. He's concerned about Levi, and he's concerned about Zacchaeus more than he is, the scandal that he causes by eating with them. Do you see how much we've missed in those two stories? Even the eating is powerful. The Bible says "And Jesus went to their house when he ate with them, in that culture at that time, that's a powerful sign of acceptance. I'm welcoming you in, I'm, I'm befriending you I'm sharing space and food with you. We have the Jesus who seeks the outcasts. Let's look at the Samaritans. Jesus leaves Judea, and He goes back once more to Galilee, and the Bible says He had to go through Samaria, and we know this story. Probably, He comes to a town there, there's a well there, He's tired, it's noon, which is an important detail. He sits down, and who shows up? A Samaritan woman, and He says, can I have a drink? And she's surprised, as well she should be. She says, how can you ask me for a drink? And then John needs to explain, because he's writing to Gentiles. He needs to say, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. That's one of the understatements of the New Testament. But so far, all we've pictured is Jesus, tired, it's dinner time. He's going to sit down and have a chat with a woman and have a drink of water. Listen, friends, everything about this story is inflammatory. The whole shooting match. Samaritans were Jews left behind during the exile. They had intermarried with Gentiles. Their religion was a mix of Judaism and paganism. They were despised by Jews who often called them dogs. Jews would even avoid walking through Samaritan territory. They held them in such disdain, they would not eat their food, speak to them, look at them or touch them. And if they had to travel through Samaria, and normally they didn't, normally they went out around Samaria altogether. If they happened to step foot in Samaria when they left, they take their sandals off and beat Samaritan dust off their feet so as not to track it into Jewish territory. Now when you don't want somebody's dust, you really don't like them. So he's in Samaria. And you notice what his disciples are gone to do? They're gone to buy food. You know what Jews never did with Samaritans? Eat their food. It's lined up. It's all lined up. And she's not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. And the Bible says the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. Because Jews then, particularly Jewish rabbis, never talked one on one a woman except their wives. Women in some circles here were little more than property. Certainly not one to be engaged with on a one-on-one conversation. And there he is. And so she's not just a Samaritan, she's a Samaritan woman. You can't imagine a story more offensive to first century Jews than Jesus sat in Samaria eating their food, talking to a Samaritan woman. It's the same as if the story i read, he was sitting there talking to a transgendered Muslim. But we miss it now, don't we? Of course, we know she's there at noon because she'd been through five men in the town already and she's on her sixth. And she had to come draw water at noon, not at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. when it was cool. She's there at noon to avoid the other women of the town. Because when you've been through six of their husbands, you're not very popular. That's why she's there at noon. See the detail? That story is loaded up with how Jesus seeks the outcast. And now this story should make more sense to you. The good who? Samaritan. And who did Jesus have pass by? Levites and rabbis. And who stopped? The dog. Even when he tells stories, he ticks them off. And we miss it because now a Samaritan thus, They're just good people who stop and help people who get fallen in a ditch. And notice this in 4.4. It says, and he had to go through Samaria. He never, because most Jews avoided Samaria and they went out around it. But Jesus was compelled to Samaria and for her. A Samaritan woman of terribly low sexual morality or repute who had bounced around. probably because she herself was really broken. And in that culture, she needed a man to provide for her. When one tossed her out, she went to the next. And what does he do? He offers her living water. Then we get the angry Jesus. This is the fellow I most relate to. And this is the story of the cleansing of the temple, which you would know, he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, isn't it written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Each of the gospels here highlights a little different aspect, and today I want to see if we can think a little bit differently about this story because when we ask why Jesus was angry we assume he's angry at the money changers because they're doing business in the temple and I'd like to suggest that's not necessarily so because they had to be selling and changing money to provide for people to worship properly at the temple. You needed the sacrifices and you needed your money changed into the currency of the temple. Instead I want to suggest the focus is on the location of the activity which is the court of the gentiles Now, you may not know your Old Testament uh, geography all that well, but there was the big temple, and in the deep part of the center is the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwells, and then you have a lovely court where the Jewish men were allowed, and then you have a court of the women. You all don't want to go back there, do you? And then you have the court of the Gentiles. God had even back then made a place... For those who were outcast, those who were marginalized, to gather to worship against the court of the Gentiles. And this, I would suggest to you, is where they were doing their business, in the only place set up for the seeker. Because they didn't value them. James Edwards says the Messiah was popularly expected to purge Jerusalem and the temple of Gentiles, aliens, and foreigners. Jesus' action, however, is exactly the reverse. He does not clear the temple of Gentiles, but for Gentiles. Jesus is upset because a barrier had been placed in the way of the seekers who are viewed as outcasts. The Jews so little valued Gentiles and the marginalized and the foreigner that they were doing their business in the only place they could come and worship. They were effectively setting up a barrier for those who would come to meet God, who were not of their tribe. You think the church does that today? They're setting up barriers. Jesus gets himself a little bit upset. John tells us he fashions a whip, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and drives them out of it and we've always assumed it was for because they were conducting business but i want to ask you what if it's because they were getting in the way of the marginalized and the outcast who didn't fit their mold and that's why he says my house shall be called a house of prayer and he includes the phrase for all nations so consider this what would Jesus do indeed? What would Jesus do if he showed up to our churches today? I think that fashioning a whip is within the realm of possibility, probably for the same reasons in some cases. This one will connect with you, the Jesus who was himself despised and Jesus came to his hometown and he taught them in their synagogues, so they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Watch it. Is this not the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? And are these not his brothers and James and Joseph and Simon? And they took great offense at him. And you know what may most poignant in this phrase we skip over, and it's right here, is not his mother called Mary? They never even used Joseph's name, you notice that? See, you know, Jews always trace their lineage through the Father, right? But in this case, they don't use Joseph's name. They says this is the carpenter's son. His mother is called Mary. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps you can relate to Jesus here. The good people of Nazareth couldn't get beyond Jesus' past to see his present. They, they really couldn't see beyond what they knew about history to see his story. some of us are like that, we're trapped in the narrative of our past, and we can't see what God's doing in the present. And Jesus had this problem, he was despised. Given the circumstances of Jesus' birth in a small town, and archaeologists tell us Nazareth at the time may have had between 150 and 200 people. Do you remember how Mary got pregnant? by the Holy Ghost. Show of hands how many people in you think in that town believed her. Try it. Show up to your peers, ladies, and say, hey mom, I'm pregnant. <laughs> it's by God. Because me and Joseph haven't been fooling around. It's God. Do you think anyone believed her? No. So what do you imagine he was called? He's born out of wedlock, people, as far as they're concerned, because the whole Holy Spirit thing probably is not playing well in this little small community. And in those times, very much like in rural Newfoundland when I grew up, to be born out of a wedlock was terribly shameful. My mother would talk about her school friends who became pregnant in school. They would literally send them away out of town to a, a relative's town where they knew, she knew nobody, so nobody she knew could see her pregnant in the shame of being out of wedlock. She would literally disappear for a year and show up back with a baby, and nobody asked a question, because it was so shameful. So you know there's an excellent chance in, in Nazareth Jesus grew up being, grew up Known as the bastard child of Mary. Do you know he probably heard that all the time? You don't even have a real dad. And he carried that stigma around with him? And that's probably why they say, isn't this Mary's son? He knows what that shame is like. And the final one. The Jesus who runs. Now we notice the tax collectors and sinners are gathered around to hear Jesus and the Pharisees are again muttering that he eats with them. And so Jesus tells three stories. He tells the story of the lost sheep, how excited God is when he leaves the 99 and he finds one. And he tells the story of the lost coin about a woman who loses one coin and how excited she is when she finds the final one. And compare the appeal of our churches to that of Jesus. The tax collectors and sinners are gathering to hear him, because they like him. They come to find him. They want to hear him. And the third story Jesus tells is about the prodigal son. And we know that he went to his father and said, I want my inheritance now. He goes off to a distant country. He He spends everything he has in wild living. When a famine comes, he gets really hungry, so he hires himself out to a citizen of that country. He starts feeding the pigs, and finally he's so hungry, he says to himself, what am I doing here? My father's servants have more than I've got. You know this story, right? I'm going to go home, throw myself on dad's mercy. While he's still a long way off, his father saw him, and the King James used to say, and I used to find this fascinating as a child, he fell on his neck and kissed him. And they used to think, make no wonder he kissed him. His neck was sore. His father, seeing him a long way off, ran to him. And as we know, never reinstated him as a servant, but threw a party for him. Prodigal, you know, means wasteful. He's, requir- he's, he's asked for a third of his father's inheritance before his father even dies. This is basically saying, I can't wait for you to kick the bucket. Can you give me my money now? It's unbelievably insulting to his dad. But his father grants it anyway. And he moves away and he blows the fortune. And then he finds himself, and these are the details we miss, he finds himself working in Gentile territory, feeding what? Pigs. Nothing is more despised by a Jew than the unclean foods like pigs. And so this story gets layered up. He's now in pagan land working for the Gentiles, feeding pigs. This kid is a disgrace. And then probably we've all missed this. Most important part of this story is that the father runs because Middle Eastern fathers never ran, it was undignified. And Jesus' listeners would have been thinking to themselves, what crazy kind of love is this, that the father is actually running towards this kind of embarrassment of a kid. It would have blown their minds that the father ran towards a kid who was working for Gentiles feeding pigs and why is this story told? For Jesus to show us what kind of love God has for the broken and the marginalized and we miss it now because we just view a guy who's left Toronto and gone to Detroit selling cars but the story is layered up layered up to show how Jesus seeks the outcast. Jesus seeks the marginalized. God isn't just willing to forgive sinners, friends. He is absolutely passionate about it. And you and I need to recognize what great lengths the Bible has gone to to demonstrate that Jesus ate and drank and had relationship with and ministered to the very worst of his society the most offensive and I could have told you 25 stories today like these and every one of them are loaded up with things that are offensive to the establishment about how Jesus sought the ones that the church considered marginalized this is why they were so mad at him all the time he went out of his way to find these people so who are the most despised people you can think of today Who are the most despised people you can think of today, in our context? Because that's what the Gospels are doing. So I want you to imagine these biblical stories. This is just my imagination at work. You ready? Suppose Matthew told this story, or Luke, how would it change your understanding of the very safe Jesus we so often picture in Western culture? But this was Matthew. but that was Zacchaeus. he so regularly called people who are marginalized and broken like our porn star said come follow me I have a better life I have living water for you but if the stories in the Gospels had these titles as they would in the 21st century How does that change your understanding of the Jesus you serve and follow? And then supposing this was our picture of the Last Supper. Just look at them. They're leaning in. They want to hear from them. Supposing you pictured the 12 disciples like that. Because it wouldn't fire off. He called the sons of thunder, for goodness sakes. How does that change your picture of Jesus? The one who goes out of his way to seek out the marginalized and the broken is the one we serve. Father, for your presence in this place, I give you thanks. impart your word on our hearts, O Lord, and in our minds for your glory and for the glory of your kingdom, and dismiss us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen, folks. Thank you. Let this word dwell in you richly. Go in peace.